It is really good to be here. This is my first visit ever to Solihull. I've driven past your noble place many times, seen it on a sign, but I've never actually come off the motorway and come into Solihull. Um, I certainly had never seen this building before, um, or, or anything really, uh, you know, to do with, with what you're doing. I just, as Rob has reflected, I'd met Rob, uh, and, t- you know, just a little bit met Alice, uh, but really not well enough to hardly know her. So it's quite true that our relationship has been um, a few quite meaty conversations and meaningful ones, a little bit through Rob's mum and dad down in Winchester, and just that sense of a God thing in it, really, as we were just reflecting. So I'm excited to be here with you, and I, I particularly feel excited to be here at this point in your history. Now, what I'm going to do is a bit teachery, so I hope that you're okay, because it's an unusual time to have a meeting, but I know you have no choice, so it's not a, but you know, it's, I could work for you, it depends how big a sort of lunch you had, really, doesn't it? But, and how late a one. But, uh, it could be okay, you could feel, you know, because sometimes people are half asleep when you gather at 10 o'clock in the morning, but hopefully you're not now. Gonna get your brains in gear. We won't be able to read all the passages I'm gonna look at, but I would like to refer to several. That one up there is going to be our, where we're going to land in a few minutes, and we're going to look at the story of Gideon. This is me probably, is it, jiggling about? We're going to look at the story of Gideon in a moment or two, but... Oh, that's it. I feel better already. Uh, uh, but before we get there, I want to refer to something in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. If you want to flick at it to make sure I'm telling you the truth, you can, or actually more weightily, just to see it for yourself. But Isaiah 9 and the first seven verses are a wonderful prophecy about the coming Messiah, the coming Saviour. They're one of those incredible prophecies that you get in the Old Testament that really just are amazing and awesome when you know how Jesus fulfilled them. And so it is a prophecy you will be very familiar with because it's used most of the time in our Christmas readings. It's one of our Christmas nine lessons and carols and stuff. But we all use it because it's such a magnificent prophecy and it's so appropriate. It refers to the Messiah Saviour. Get that in your mind, who we know is Jesus. It refers to his link with Galilee. It points to the Incarnation because you get the mighty God becoming a child born among us. It highlights his links with David. It foresees the introduction of the kingdom of God, talking about peace and righteousness and justice. It talks about the Saviour as being the light of the world, a world that's in darkness where he shines as a light. It talks about him bringing victory over the powers of darkness and the bondage they put people in. So it's amazing prophecy about breakthrough and deliverance and salvation. And in it, there is this little phrase, it will be as at the Battle of Midian. Now that actually I think is NASB. It's always slightly differently tweaked, whether you've got ESV or NIV, whatever we use these days. But it basically draws a parallel to the work of Jesus and what he does, and it says it will be as at the Battle of Midian. It's actually referring to this which we're going to read. It's referring to Gideon's victory over the Midianites, and there's something about this victory that has more to it than just an extraordinary episode in Israel's history, which it is. 
because the Bible is made up of real history, real people, dealing with real situations within a real experience of God. And they're not perfect. A lot of the people, and Gideon is certainly not perfect. We'll see that parts of it tonight. But but they're actually ordinary people like you and I who prove God in it, in the circumstances of their lives. And we learn from that and God speaks to us from that. But then some incidents seem to have a real prophetic weight. I mean, an obvious another one is the Passover and the Passover lamb. Another slightly unusual quirky little one is when Moses raises up on a, on a pole a bronze serpent. And although that is a very, very expensive important experience for the children of Israel right then when they were dealing with poisonous snakes it seems to have a much bigger prophetic picture which Jesus picks up about him being lifted up on the cross made sin for us when we just look at him we are set free from the poison of sin and death it's an amazing prophetic picture of Jesus you can preach a glorious gospel out of it once people understand what it's about and and it seems that these incidents are there all through history where God says I want puts a spotlight I want you to notice that one, saying about that. And the Battle of Midian is one of those. So that actually what the Saviour does, what the Redeemer does, his ongoing work has some resonance with the Battle of Midian. There's a prophetic angle for, for us in it. And I think taking one, uh, sorry, Isaiah 9 in our background as we're thinking for a few minutes, I think there is not just a one-off about this, it's in a sense true that what we get in Isaiah 9 is sort of how it is when the Saviour comes, when Jesus comes. He, he, you know, in general terms, where there's darkness, he brings light. Where there is bondage and slavery, he breaks the yoke of slavery and bondage. That's what the gospel's about. That's what Jesus does. And he often, in our experience and in our time, will work in a way that is a bit like the Battle of Midian. See where I'm going? So, yes, it has an application to his particular work when he died and rose again, but it strikes me that it's the ongoing work, which we're still in, of the gospel that it also has relevance to and therefore relevant relevant to us. So as at the Battle of Midian, or the Battle of Midian is going to teach us some things about bringing hope to a hopeless nation, hopeless city, bringing light into a dark place, which this will be spiritually, as most places are in our country, bringing breakthrough in bondage, just bringing the gospel, just just seeing God move in our generation. So let's go back now. I've got the background. We're going to be looking at what's there in Judges. And we're not going to... We're going to read in a moment Judges 7. We'll read parts of it. But before we even get to that, because I, I, I haven't got the time to give you a whole series... I'm going to have to do some headline stuff so you do understand the background to this. So be a few moments before we, before we move right into Judges 7. So quickly, I hope this helps. This is sort of telling you the story. In Judges 6, we find God's people, and that's what the Israelites are, God's people. So I don't think it's a big leap to make a parallel with us. We're God's people. God's people living in fear, hiding, overwhelmed, by an enemy that's oppressive and very powerful. You can read it all through Judges 6, but what's happening is that the in fear and helplessness, the people of God have developed a siege mentality, really. They are either hiding in caves, they're, they're, they're tucked away in corners, avoiding 
exposing themselves or letting even people know they're there. And actually Gideon himself, who is the character the story focuses on, is threshing wheat in a well, which because we don't thresh wheat and think about it, we think, yeah, okay, told me that. Well, that is a really weird place to thresh wheat. Because what they used to do was they beat the wheat to get rid of the husks, and ideally you chose the windiest, breeziest place you could find. Because as you beat it, obviously the husks came off, and hopefully they blew away in the breeze or the wind. So down a well is about, it's almost like stupid. <laughs> but, but he obviously is doing it because he's scared stiff. So even he is hiding away because this enemy, this Midianites, rule the land. And it's a real intimidation thing. It's not merely a physical fear. There's an intimidation. Because one of the features of the Midianites, and when you read some commentators, they make a big deal of this, one of the features of the Midianites is they had camels, lots of camels. So they had a camel cavalry. Now, the Israelites had no camels and didn't know how to ride camels. So a camel cavalry was scary. When thousands of camels turned up with blokes riding on the back of them with swords and spears and stuff, that was pretty scary. I mean, you didn't have to do much. You just ran away. So there was an intimidation. It seemed like these people were so powerful and overwhelming. Now, I want to say to you right now, straight away, that I think there's a parallel in that with the church in modern 21st century UK. I'm not referring to everywhere in the world. There's some parts of the world where that wouldn't be so true. But in our country, I think it's becoming very like that, that Christians are being marginalised. They feel marginalised. They're even scared. They can't necessarily wear a cross at work. They can't actually just... I saw this week uh, a chaplain, police chaplain, I think, who on his own personal blog, if I've got it right, said his opinions about the gay marriage debate, and he didn't agree that, you know, it could be a marriage. He wasn't saying anything negative about civil partnerships, but he actually got dismissed from being the police chaplain because he made his personal views known on that subject. It wasn't in the context of in the police force. And, he, he, and, and you know, that sort of thing scares people, and they go down a hole, and they go into a cave. And, and teachers and others get very nervous about expressing Christian views in all sorts of ways. I think it's getting worse and people in our culture are inclined to think the church is anachronistic and, 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 you know, irrelevant and, and sideline us. Well, that's what was happening to Israel in Gideon's time. And I think God wants to encourage us that is not where we're going to stay. As at the Battle of Midian, there is going to be a change and it needs to happen. Because the forces that rule our land, and I'm not really thinking of our politicians so much as the demonic, really, the forces that rule our land are holding people in bondage, in horrible bondage. Many of the things that people think are liberating are actually in binding them up. Many of the things people think are a sort of moral liberation, when you really analyse it, they're not. You know, promiscuity, drug-taking, drunkenness, these are terribly destroying things. They're terribly Im- they're destroying people's lives, they're destroying family life. And there's a sense of darkness and bondage in our land. Now, the answer at the time of Midian for the people of God did not lie in the people of God fighting the Midianites with the Midianites' weapons. And and that is part of the Battle of Midian lesson. The Battle of Midian is, you've got, you can read it in the story, the thousands of camels... But when Israel wins and overturns the enemy, they don't use one camel. They don't have any camels. 
So they don't win by trying to match the Midianites at their own game. And so the answer to the problem is never going to be we've got to somehow get in so in touch with the world that you can hardly tell the difference. We've got to so make our gospel politically correct, so dumb things down, so blend things together that we can't really, you know, we just engage, engage, engage with people. Now, I'm all for engaging with culture up to a point, but ultimately you don't win by trying to learn to ride a camel because you're never going to be good enough as a camel rider. The world does the world stuff a lot better. If you want stuff that is really, you know, very uh, promiscuous or whatever it is, that, that's where you go to the world. You, and, and other things. The world does the world stuff. We don't. We don't do camels. So we have to find out how we do win. And actually, when you trace the story in Judges six, the problem wasn't the camels. Actually, contrary to some of these commentators, oh, this was a new technology. This was like the Midianites were suddenly. That's why they were so strong. No, it wasn't. You read the story. What was happening was the relationship between God's people and God had got bad. And as Israel began to ignore God, God allowed their enemies to rule the land. And so the answer is never to try and, you know, engage with the camels business. If if you're with me, you'll understand when I refer to camels, what I'm referring to. That's not the answer. I want to talk to you about our country and why we need churches like yours, why you need to be red hot for the Lord, why you need to be passionate for the gospel, why you need to be loving and accepting of people, but absolutely not compromising the message. I'll tell you why. Here's a, here's a, here's a reminder. If you didn't know this, I'm sure you did, but reading in the paper just a few weeks ago uh, about the 2011 census, it may be I read it just before the end of the year last year, it wasn't very long ago, about the 2011 census in our country. In 2001, 72% of our countrymen called themselves Christian. In 2011, 10 years later, only 59% called themselves Christian. In 2001, 15% of our fellow countrymen in this census, which asks everybody, said they had, 15% said they had no religion. In 2011, 25% said they had no religion. Now that in itself is bad enough. But if I add to you a few little background facts, in those 10 years, we have had massive immigration into our nation. And many of the people who've come into our nation and have become citizens, I'm not talking about illegal, proper citizens who would have answered the census, many of them are actually more religious than the average English person. A good example would be Polish people. In 2001, there were only 50,000 Poles in the UK. But in 2010, or 11, I beg your pardon, there were 600,000 Polish people in the UK. Now, most Polish people will be quite strong in their Catholicism. They will have a worshipping God. They are unlikely to answer, I haven't got any religion. That's not what they're likely to answer. Nor are many of the people who've come from Africa, Nigeria, because they tend to be in the big, often big black churches in London, that sort of thing. Why am I telling you that? Why I'm telling you guys is what we might call, and I'm not more talking about race here, but what we might call the ordinary English person has got further and further away from God or any trust in God. Because those percentages have gone up, 
But in those questions will have been people who did actually have a God framework. What I'm telling you is our nation desperately needs revival. Our nation desperately needs the gospel. And most of our fellow Englishmen are a long way from it at the moment. Now, this isn't to leave you negative, but it's to stir you that we need to see how to break through, as in the Battle of Midian. Because at the moment, people think the clever thing to do is say you're an atheist or an agnostic. The clever thing to do is to say there isn't a God. The clever thing to do is to say Christianity is Victorian or 19th century or out of touch or uh, not. I remember when um, the bishop, the Church of England didn't vote for women bishops. I mean, a lot of people wanted women bishops. But when the Church of England didn't vote for women, women bishops, David Cameron said something like this in Parliament. I'm not sure if I got the quote quite right. He was quite contemptuous of the church and he said something like, get with the agenda. I think that was the phrase he used. I thought, whose agenda are you talking about? What are you telling you telling the church to get with your agenda? And you think, sometimes we are trying to get with their agenda and we look pretty stupid like people trying to ride a camel they can't ride. I mean, bluntly, I think quite often it looks like that. I, poor old Church of England, I'm not I mean, knocking them, but I, when they talked about they wanted to allow people to be bishops who were in civil partnerships but were celibate, I thought that sounded like trying to ride a camel. It sounded like odd. You thought, that just about doesn't please anybody. And you think, we are not going to win people over by trying to engage like, oh, we're, we're like you, really. No, no, we've got to find the different answer, okay? We've got to talk about an unusual battle. That's uh, the next slide eventually. Don't worry, it won't be quite so long. But there's lots of stuff I want to say, so I want to stir your hearts. Now, in this battle, I think there are two sections to what I want to say. This is about chapter 7, the Battle of Midian. We may not read a whole chunk of it, we may just keep referring to it. I want to talk about human weakness first, and prophetic encouragement. And then I'll, in a moment after that, a few minutes later, I want to talk about human responsibility and divine intervention. But at the moment, let's stick with this point. You see, Gideon's story is a very interesting one. Gideon is actually not a great hero. He's actually quite a wimp. Not only does he start off down this uh, well, beating out the grain, even when God gets hold of him, he seems to need constant reassurance, constant encouragement that God's with him. I mean, he's sceptical it's God speaking to him in the first place. When he knows it is God, he gets really scared that he's going to die. You think, oh, you can't please this bloke. Oh, how do I know it's you? It is me. Ah, it's you! You know, it's like, oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) And, 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 And then when he's told to tear down his dad's altar to Baal, he does it at night because he knows people get cross with him or angry with him and try and kill him. So he does it as as secretly as possible. It says in the verse, because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night. Then if you know the story, there's an incident where he asked God to give him a a, a sort of sign that God was going to help him. And one is to have a fleece on the ground. It's wet on the fleece and dry on the ground. That happens. So he thinks, well, that could have been luck. Let's assume what we thought. Can can we do it the other way around, just to make sure it's you? And so he does that. And then on the eve of the battle, here in Judges 7, let's look at that, because we're we're here on the eve of the actual battle. If you go to verse uh, 9, God says, During the night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp of Midian, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, 
Go down to the camp with your servant, listen to what they're saying, and afterwards you'll be encouraged to attack. Oh, let's read a few verses. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples were settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels, there you go, could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend a dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Now, before we go into his strategy, let's stop there for a moment. So once again, God says, actually, if you read it, God says, I'm going to give the camp into your hand. Then God graciously says, if you're afraid to attack, you can go down and listen to the camp. You can imagine getting afraid of it, not me. What did you say I could do if I was afraid? (laughs) He is afraid. So God says, if you're afraid, I'm going to give you another encouragement. And so he goes down and he listens to this prophetic word. Now, I want to get a lesson here because it's an important one. God isn't looking for action heroes. He's looking for people that got just a mustard seed of faith and will obey him even if they're scared. That's what you get out of this story. You get that the human weakness doesn't stop it. I actually sympathize with Gideon. I'm a bit like that. It is quite scary being a Christian. It's scary talking about your faith in college or school or work or the workplace or the friends and the neighbors and the women at the, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the mothers and toddlers group, wherever you are on, you know, it's scary. But God is with us. He doesn't, in a way, obedience is essential. Heroism is optional. Heroism is optional. God's not looking for great, tough actions. He's not looking for people who, who, as I say, are like a Rambo, spiritual Rambo. He didn't get it in Gideon, and he hasn't got it in me, and he probably hasn't got it in you. That sort of thing, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. That sounds great. It's great on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt, but in life, we don't often feel quite like that do we? We need a little more encouragement. Well, God knows that. And he engages and he repeatedly speaks. He does the fleece thing. He does the prophetic word. How gracious is that? I'm going to do it. But if you're afraid, go down. And it's a really unique prophetic encouragement. I think Gideon, going on the fleece incident, if he'd had just had his own dream, I can imagine him waking up and think, oh, that was too much cheese last night. He, he's, he, you know, but actually God says, you go and listen. And he hears a Midianite soldier saying, oh, that dream is about Gideon. Who, and he, he actually gives him all virtually his address. Gideon, you know, his, his postcode almost. He says, Gideon, this, I mean, how did the Midianite soldier know that? I don't know. Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite, that's about him. He's going to beat us. <laughs> you think, great. That was encouraging. And Gideon got it. He got the encouragement. And I want you to know, God is with you and will encourage you with prophetic words. He will bring things, just little coincidences, just moments to bring you encouragement. But I actually think, let's learn, Gideon may have been a bit of a wimp in many ways, but he did stuff right. He did obey God. He actually did pull down the Baal altars in his father's garden, backyard, whatever it was. They were pagan altars. Now, God didn't tell him he'd got to do it in the daytime. He just did it. He was a bit scared, but he did it. 
And I would say to you and me, sometimes God asks you to do things and, and sometimes you feel so nervous about it, but you actually do it and you feel, if I don't feel bold and right, maybe it's not worth doing. That's never true. God wants your genuine faith steps, your real... Some, when you see people healed by Jesus, they often do quite hesitant, just touch the hem of his garment. They're real acts of faith, but they're not mighty ones. It, they're, they're just at little human acts of obedience. And that's what God looks for. And that's what God looks for in us. And if we're going to win breakthrough in our day, when, it, in my opinion, the demonic Midianites rule the land and the camels are charging up and down every road, when if we're going to win, we're going to have to beat people who are like Gideon. We may be a bit nervous, we may be a bit scared, we may like to do it at night rather than the daytime, but we're going to go for Jesus. We're going to speak for Jesus. We're going to believe God. He isn't a man who lacks faith. Once he's been encouraged, we read it. He goes back and he says, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Needed a bit of getting there, but he got there. And he grew in faith as the whole thing went through. He's open to God encouraging him prophetically. These are things I've already said, but I want you to be like that. I want you to be people who are not frightened to obey God, who are not reluctant to use a bit of faith, who don't worry if you feel a bit nervous, you feel a bit weak, and you feel a bit like, I'm not, I'm no great preacher, I'm no great evangelist. No, no, but I can share the love of Jesus with people. I can, if God prompts me to pray for someone or ask someone, do they want me to pray for them? I can do that. I might do it quietly, you know, not in front of everybody else, but I will do it. And also that I am open to God speaking to me, which is what I think I pick up from Gideon. And then also that he was a worshipper. It said he worshipped. When God spoke to him and he heard the dream, he worshipped God. God loves it. If people who, so let's list it quickly, people who are willing to obey him, don't have to feel brave, people who have a little mustard seed of faith, people who say, I'm open, Lord, to your word, to your encouragement, to you speaking into me, and people who are worshippers, which is all these things I get from Gideon. However weak he was, God says, people like that I can use, and I can use in my battle. Now, I'm, I think my friend on, well done. You've kept up with me. John, well done. I didn't ask you. I, I trust you're using common sense. That's good because I don't always use it. <laughs> I want to move on to the second point. Two main points. That was one. This is the second one. Human responsibility and divine intervention. And in a sense, this is the core of the battle thing, really. So we're learning, if we're going to see breakthrough in our day and age, we may be weak, we may be fearful, but we've got to be people prepared to, prepared to obey God, to use the little bit of faith we've got, people who are open to prophetic encouragement, open to the Holy Spirit speaking to us, and people who are worshippers. Now let's look at the battle itself. This battle, this breakthrough, was a work of God. There is no question about that. There is no way in which 300 people not armed with a single sword, well, one sword maybe, but we don't know. Didn't seem anybody had a sword. They had a pot, they had a light, uh, a pitcher, and they had a trumpet. Let's read it. I forgot, I haven't read it. I told you I'd lose the plot. Right, let's go back to verse 16. Now we're reading the second half of the story. So, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them and torches inside. Right, 
That's what they've got for their battle. Okay? They, that's not, strikes me as not mightily effective weapons. Trumpets, empty jars with a torch inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets, they broke the jars that were in their hands, the three companies blew their trumpets and smashed their jars, grasping the torches in their left hands, holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled in all sorts of directions. And I can't pronounce the words, so we'll stop there. But basically, they saw victory, but it was the work of God. And this passage lays that on thick and really lays it on thick. It says, look, there were thousands of camels. They hadn't got a weapon. They only had these pitchers and trumpets and lights. And then by the hand of God, they were given victory. Now, actually, I think the first lesson is that is important for us to learn. There is no way we are going to see breakthrough in Solihull, in Winchester or modern Britain just by our wits. We have not got the clout. How? Look at us. I mean, we're not a bad bunch, but here we are, five o'clock, five past five on a on a Sunday evening, sitting in this bit, and you think, and just think of all that's around. Think of the House of Fraser, just catches my eye out there. The big organizations, the money, the banks, the politics, the politicians. You know, think, how do we shift it? The media, the television, the pop culture, the multi-billion pounds they all have. How are we going to shift that? How are we going to, we're not going to fight fire with fire. It's going to be a work of God. We need a serious breakthrough in our generation in this country, don't we? We need a move of God. I believe it. I believe we need to see large numbers saved on the ground in, in the thousands of churches like us. We all need to see people saved. Not only ones that are our group, obviously. Anywhere where the gospel is truly preached, we're going to have to see them all breaking through. We're also going to need to see some key people saved, like you have historically. I don't know who they are yet, but people who will be influential, caught up in the, the work of God. And so suddenly you get someone like a Wilberforce or a, or whatever, or a Wesley or somebody saved, and they begin to do something a bit more than the rest of us can. But God will know who that is, but we don't. We don't. But what we've got to see is a work of God if we're going to see the tide turned in our country. We can't make it happen ourselves. And the message of the Battle of Midian is that God is prepared to do it like that. And it's always like this. Like you feel, we feel only a handful on the back foot. Yeah, but it's always like that. It's always as at the Battle of Midian. As at the Battle of Midian. They're just, you know, the 300 and the thousands of camel cavalry and God does things. God is sovereign and unable. He's able to use the unlikely people, the have-nots, the are-nots. He's able to use us to bring breakthrough. Now, we'll keep, keep, let me keep myself on my on, on, on my message. <laughs> what we need to first of all do then is not merely look at things from a human perspective. That's the point I want to get. That we don't 
really want to think, how are we going to shake it all? We've got to get as, we've got to use their weapons, their tools, be as powerful as them. But having said that, there is a human element. And that is obviously what we want to learn from. There are things we can learn about Gideon and his little army that are relevant to us right here in Jubilee Church in Soli Hull. I would throw two things out to start with. Gideon's 300 are unified and committed to one another. If you read the story carefully, you see they must be. It does actually say they are in many ways, but you can see they must be. There are little things that bring it out. Okay, there's 300 people. Let's use our imaginations. It's pitch black. You've got a pitcher. I mean, try and imagine this. You've got a torch in the pitcher so that it shouldn't be visible. You've got to keep it from being visible. You've got a trumpet under your arm, a pitcher with a torch in it. I don't know. And you're told you're going to be divided up into three companies of 100. Okay? It was scary enough being 300. It was 32,000 to start with. Then it was 10,000. Now it's 300. That's what they've gone through. 32,000 wouldn't have beaten the Midianites. God was proving it to be his work. But nevertheless, it had been scary if you're on the receiving end. <laughs> you're down to 300, and now we're going to be down to 100. Okay, Rob, you're 100. That's about 100. Off you go. You're over there with your pictures. And wait until I give the shout, and then you've got it. And it really was important they did it all together. Can you imagine it? if somebody just started playing with their torch? And, it, and a Midianite soldier saw a few flickering torches in the bushes. They'd just go in to investigate and finish them off, wouldn't they? Because actually, humanly speaking, as you will guess, the impact humanly was of it all happening together. So suddenly lights appeared all round the Midianite. It actually wasn't that many, but it was enough. And they came suddenly, they heard a 300 trumpets blow suddenly, and the Midianites got a bit scared, especially as they'd had all these funny dreams. And actually, God stirred the pot... And they ended up killing each other. They used their own swords to kill each other. And then they got really scared and panicked and ran. But actually, for that humanly to work, it was very important that people weren't saying, well, yeah, I don't mind what Gideon said, but personally, I'd rather be over the other side of the hill. So six of my friends and me, we're going over here. Is that all right? And somebody else said, well, actually, I'm going to blow my trumpet now. (laughs) You know, that wouldn't have been any good at all. Or like, well, who wants to carry a torch in a pitcher? It's jolly uncomfortable. I'll carry mine like this. If if people hadn't got it, that you had to work together, they'd have never got anywhere. Now, I want to say to you, right in the ground, if we as churches are going to make any impact out there, we don't do it by all doing our own thing. We all have a contribution to make, but we must be united. We must work together. We must be committed to one another. I mean, there's a lot of trust involved here. They trust. I mean, they, I mean, they could be just mincemeat, couldn't they? They're trusting in God, but they're actually trusting in Gideon's heard from God. And that, okay, I'll do my bit. I mean, you could make a lot out of this lesson. I'm not going to do all this, but it's about your light shining and all the rest of it. But Action, blowing the gospel trumpet. I'm sure we could have a wonderful Sunday school lesson. But actually, the biggest lesson is they were unified and committed to one another and they did what they were told when they were told. They said, right, you know, if you like, let me be very practical. This church is going to do a prayer night. I'm going to be there. We're going to have a week praying for the... You know, we're going to do a mission thing. We're going to do something with Angela Kemp. I'm going to be there. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm one of your leaders. I'm, you know, you know, I've never been here before. 
But I know that's how churches work. That's how we break through in the as at the Battle of Midian. What are the lessons? One of them is this small group were committed to one another, unified in obeying God's strategy. And that is one of the ways we get breakthrough. Even on the day of Pentecost, the 120 were together in the upper room. I think Acts is an amazing book. You probably haven't got 120 in the church yet, have you? But it's not a big number. You're not far short, I shouldn't think. 120 people united to praying together. The Holy Spirit falls. Do you know the book of Acts only covers 30 years of history? 30 years, roughly. Pretty well, 30 years. It is just, I mean, 30 years isn't long. I'm old, so it doesn't seem long to me. I mean, when was 30 years ago from today? Was that um, 1983? 83. 83. That's not far. So you imagine the day of Pentecost was in 1983, and today we would have churches all round, 120 people, only 120. And in 30 years later, you have churches all around the eastern Mediterranean. You've got a big church in Corinth and Ephesus, Galatia. You've got churches in Thessalonica. You've got church in Rome. You've got Paul in Rome. And that's where he is at the end of the book of Acts. That's just 120 people unified, filled with the Spirit, and in a in what they thought would call a lifetime. For us, it's more than a life. We, we Most of us live longer than 30 years. One generation, one church, united and filled with the Spirit, did that. That's what. That's the practical reality of the book of Acts. And I honestly think God gave it to us to provoke us. That can happen in every generation. In every generation, you get 120 people unified, filled with the Spirit. By the end of their lives, shall we say, they can have that sort of impact. I do think that's... A, because the book of Acts is like the first scene of the drama of, of church history. And the curtain comes down and it's still ongoing. Paul's sitting there in Rome teaching people about the kingdom of God and the curtain comes across. And we're in, I don't know what we're in, Act 6, Act six, Scene 4 or something. But it's the same drama. That's a total digression. But, it's, but it is important because we are, actually it's more than important. I, stir your heart. We are in the same tradition, not only of them, but of Gideon. The tradition of very ordinary people. Those 120 were ordinary. Peter was a right mess. Have you read the Gospels? What a bloke. Always getting things wrong. Swore that he didn't know Jesus at the trial, having chopped somebody's ear off when Jesus didn't want him to. You know, so what a mess. And John and James weren't much better. They got their mum to ask Jesus if they could be the top dogs when he got, they hadn't got the message at all what he was doing. He kept saying he was going to die. They didn't hear that at all. They thought, well, he's going to be king and we want to be on his two right hand men. Mum, go and ask him, mum. And, and, you know, you, and then another time they said, hey, the people over there, are doing things like you do, but they're not your followers, so strike them with fire. Well, we'll do it if you won't do it. I mean, you read it, you think, what a shower. But actually, actually, Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on and God uses them. Gideon is no hero. I want to know, nail that, because none. you'll probably feel you're a bit, oh, I'm not very good, I'm not, I'm not very scared, I'm a bit insecure. Yep, that's what Gideon was. But God can use us. It's as at the Battle of Midian. They were united, committed to one another. Are you and are you as a church here? And then there was trust. We haven't got time to explore this in great detail, so don't worry. But there was trust of the leadership. Now, actually, I know this is painfully nearly true. 
Some of you may have had one or two disappointments with leadership. There were plenty of disappointments in the book of Judges. The leaders are quite a disappointment. But in the end, if we're going to be effective as a small band, Gideon-like, we have to, as best we know how, not, not totally obey leaders, I'm not talking about some blind obedience, but trust that they're men who hear from God and get some sense of what God wants us to do. And these guys do seem to do that. That Gideon, as I keep saying, was not an obvious hero. There were aspects of Gideon that perhaps did not reassure you, like the fact he kept going off to get God to reassure him. And, you know, these guys were not saying, oh, Gideon, he's a, what a man's man, you know, I'd die for Gideon. Nobody's like that. Nobody's like that. But somehow there's an anointing on Gideon, they, they hear him, they somehow, perhaps they've been part of this whole process a little bit by this time. They've watched what God's been doing, 32,000, 10,300. They don't quite get it, but they know that God's with this man. And then he comes back and he's full of faith. I've heard, my servant and I heard this amazing dream that this Midianite had. And he mentioned me. And he said, we're going to beat them. So God is going to do it. And they caught something. They caught something. They just caught something of his faith, I think. And I think that's all, that's all God requires, <laughs> that your leaders put a bit of vision and a bit of faith before you, that they're men who love God. They may not be perfect. I suspect without a word of knowledge, they aren't perfect. But actually you think, right, okay, they call it, we're going to go with it. And that is the sort of spirit that seems to break through here. And perhaps my final point, you'll be pleased to hear, but it's an important one. They kept to God's strategy. That was very important. They kept to God's strategy. Now, I've already made clear the strategy was a pretty bizarre one for winning a battle. Remind yourself what it was. A clay pitcher with a torch in it and a trumpet. They obviously had to have a bit of uh, good coordination, I think. So they smashed the pitcher, the light shot. They held the light up all together, that was quite important, and then they all blew their trumpets together. So they, suddenly there was a fairly significant blaze of light and a whacking great noise. Probably the noise sounded as though it was a big army because not every soldier carries a trumpet normally. So there was a bit of psychology in it, but you had to trust God a lot too. So the, they held up their light and they blew their trumpet and they did it together. But the strategy, though it makes a little bit of sense when you know the end of the story, is a pretty odd one, isn't it? Now, I believe the strategy for bringing hope to modern Britain, for breaking the bondages in people's lives, for bringing wholeness where there's damage, for bringing healing and deliverance, do you know what I believe it is? It's preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's always seemed a foolish strategy. It's not trying to to help people to understand some philosophical concept. Not in the end. It's telling them that Jesus died for them. Paul, who was a very clever man, so don't ever think he wasn't. He was one of the brain, probably the super brains of his time. When he writes to Corinth, he says this, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. For what I received I passed on to you. So this is the gospel. 
of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, he's not giving the whole of his sermon there, but he's reminding them, this is what you heard from me. And Paul will often say, foolishness of preaching, I preach the gospel. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, it's foolishness to the Greeks, but that's what it is. This is the picture, the torch, and the trumpet, folks. You think, how do you get sophisticated modern Britain? People who are watching, you know, people who are hearing Richard Dawkins, and they understand, you know, wonders of life and all that. They don't think there's a God. I mean, people can engage in apologetics. I'm not anti-apologetics. But primarily, it's the gospel that you will preach about Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again. Now, you'll fill it out and you'll apply it to their lives. And Paul was able to be, he said, I can be all things to all men. He didn't mean he mess, altered his message. He meant he engaged with them. So to the Jews, he, he engaged, I'm a Jew. To the non-Jews, he didn't emphasize his Jewishness. He emphasized his freedom from it. I can sit and eat with you. I can eat your food. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, and, and at Athens, when, when the philosophers, he got, he said, well, your poets say this. He, he was happy to engage, but in the end, he gets to the resurrection at Athens. And some of them say, oh, it's ridiculous. What nonsense. A man rose from the dead. <laughs> but he doesn't avoid that, but he starts off saying, yeah, I see you're very religious, and uh, some of your poets say this. So he engages with them, but he never avoids the picture, torch, trumpet bit. Because that's how you get breakthrough. That is what God will back up. God will back up, by that I mean, you know what I mean, he backs up his word and the gospel. So in the battle of Midian, that's how it worked. God wouldn't have backed it up if they said, well, we don't fancy this picture business. 300 of us, let's go out there with our, let's not bother putting in the picture, let's walk down with our torches and say, we are God's people. And they go, you know, because God didn't say to do it that way. You know, I, I, I'm just making it up, you know, as I go along, you can see that. But what I mean is, it, it wasn't like there's something magic in being 300 or magic anything. It was you had to do it God's way. The gospel is the hope of the world. It really, really is. It's the power of God for salvation. God will back it up. The Spirit of God will move on that preaching and people will be saved. And if you talk to your friends, please pray for the sick. Please show them love. Please care for the poor. Nothing wrong with any of that. But in the end, somewhere, we've got to get the gospel in. So yes, we engage with the Jews, we engage with the Gentiles, we engage with the Athenian philosophers, but in the end, they all get to hear about the cross and the resurrection. They have to. Otherwise, we will never see the breakthrough as at the Battle of Midian. And actually, there's something gloriously powerful in the gospel, and you yourself are evidence of it. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at what God's done in my life, aren't you? I don't know what some of you were once, I won't even ask you. But Paul reminded the Corinthians, some of you are this, some of you are that, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified. All we're looking to do is see thousands of people enjoy what's happened to us. That's all we're looking for, in a sense. Again, Paul said, I would you were all like me except for these chains once to one of his uh, judges. He said, I want you to know what I know. don't want you to be in prison like me, but I want you to know what I know. So the strategy for breakthrough in Solihull is the gospel. It's unified 
committed band, trusting their leaders, walking in faith, not trusting in their strength or wits, but proclaiming the good news about Jesus with clarity and with faith. We don't need a Christian camel cavalry. We haven't got to try and impress the world that we've got camels as well. We've got a little clay pot and a light and a trumpet. We don't have a camel. We don't do camels. We do clay pots and lights. You say, well, that's not very good. If people like camels, well, we're going to see what it'll do. Well, people want something like camels. (laughs) Well, they're not getting them. They're going to get a blast of my trumpet. And we'll see what my trumpet does, shall we? might frighten their camel, mightn't it? So, we are here to preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's stand and pray for a moment. See what God has to say as we coming towards the end. I love coming to churches. I, I always have a rise of faith. I mean, it's a Gideon thing, really. You know, I love, I don't mind huge crowds, but I like it when it's a bit smaller. Because I think God can do so much with you guys. He can do so much with you. I just want us to wait before God for a moment. Let's wait. We won't even have the musicians up because I want you to be part of what we're just doing now for a moment. Let's just be open to the Holy Spirit. I've said a lot. I know I have. I've tried to cover the whole story and, you know, maybe it's a little much for some of you. But I believe that God will settle something in your heart this evening and I want you to get what he gives you. So just quietly, I'm going to remind you that Gideon was a very nervous man and that didn't disqualify him from God using him. What he needed, though, and he did have, was just a a, a mustard seed of faith in God He was a worshipper, and he was open to God speaking prophetically into him and encouraging him. And he was prepared to obey. When he was clear what he had to do, he did do it, even if he did it with minimum risk. It was still risky, but he did it at night. And so God's looking for that sort of person amongst you. And maybe as I speak it, there is something some of you need to do to obey God. You know you've got to put something right. It may be pretty scary, something that might offend your family, maybe getting baptised in water. Just like Gideon might have offended his dad with what he did. Something that your fellow townspeople might not like. That's what happened for Gideon. So maybe it's something that people at at school or, or at work won't like because they don't like it when people don't do what they do and say, no, no, we don't do that, I don't do that. But God's looking for you to obey him. And that in itself is part of the battle of Midian. A little bit of obedience. There's been too much disobedience amongst God's people. That's what happened to Israel. It's how they got in the mess they were in, their disobedience. And Gideon and his little band began to live differently. They began to live trying to obey God and do what he called them to do. And that made a lot of difference. If you, I'm not even going to ask you to come out for this one, but I'm going to pray for you. If you are facing a difficult choice where you know you've got to obey God, but it's hard, I want everybody to keep their eyes closed. 
But I'd like you to raise your hand clearly, because I'm going to pray for you if you are say, well, I'm facing one of these hard choices. I'd like you just to raise your hand clearly, and I'm going to pray from here. I'm not going to draw you forward, because I'm not out to, uh, to, to make a big deal of it. I just want to pray for you. You're facing, there's a few of you, thank you. So just keep your hand up as I pray, because that's really about you just acknowledging it before God. It's not about other people particularly. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that bravely and, and genuinely put their hand up. They're saying to you, Lord, you know I'm facing a difficult choice, a bit of a Gideon moment, like when he had to deal with his, his, his dad's bar altar. Lord, I pray that you will give two things to these dear people. I pray you'll give them the courage to do the right thing, but I pray you'll give them a strategy about how to do it. Because, Lord, you weren't cross with Gideon for doing it at night. That wasn't a problem at all. He just had to get rid of the altar. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give them the courage and the strategy. There is a way to do this. It may not be just a confrontation. It may be there's a bit of subtlety that God will help you to use. But you are to do what he's called you to do. You can't leave the situation untouched. Lord, I pray you'll just give strength and courage to my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And I pray, um, and this probably is many of us, <laughs> I pray if... I want to pray for you if you feel that, you know, you have opportunities to witness. This isn't mysterious. And you, you, you feel you really frightened and you know you bottle out of them. You bottle out of them. And I'm going to put my own hand up. <laughs> but I'm going to ask God to give us a little slice of Gideon courage. Come on. Let's just, let's, uh, you don't all have to put your hands up, but God knows who you are. Lord, I pray that we will have a little more courage than we have had to share our faith with people around us. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us a bit of what you've given your heroes in the Bible, who aren't heroes like Hollywood, but who are real people. I pray you'll give us a bit of their faith and a bit of their courage. I pray, Lord, we think of a, da- a, a, of a David, we think of a facing a Goliath, we think of a, a, a Gideon, or we think of a Peter, actually, or, or, or other people in the New Testament. Lord, we understand they're not, they're like us. They're, they're people. We were frightened people and confused at times. Lord, I pray, come on us now, tonight. Let there be a new boldness on every one of us. Everyone who's put their hand up, give us a boldness to speak for you. Help us not to be frightened to break our picture and let the light shine. To break our picture, let the light shine that we belong to Jesus. I pray, Lord, you'd give us that boldness. I ask that in Jesus' name. And now finally, Lord, I want to pray for Jubilee Church here in Solihull. Lord, I thank you for all you've been doing. I really feel they have come to a new place of roominess and expansion. I honestly believe that's for them. I pray, Lord, that they will be united and committed to one another. I pray that in these next few years there will be no splits, there'll be no falling away, there'll be no disunity. I pray this will be a church that's united and committed one to another. I pray to give Rob and Steve, it's Steve, isn't it? Sorry, Steve. Rob and Steve, I pray you give Rob and Steve wisdom and strategy as they try and bring leadership and vision to this church. Lord, they can only give what you give them. Pray they'll give about how they use the resources they've got, how they reach out to the community around, what they do with this building, Lord, and 
what goes on in this building and that day. Lord, I pray you'll just give these dear men clarity and strategy and I pray that their their people will be supportive and united and that, Lord, there'll be a mutual respect and a mutual trust, leader to people, people to leader, that will say, right, if we're doing it, we'll do it. I pray it will be a feature of this church that that they are unified whenever, whether it's a prayer meeting or an evangelistic meeting or whatever it is, there's a, that, that everybody's there. I pray, Lord, it will become noticeable. I pray you'll make them a, a almost like the Gideon band where they all do it together. Everybody holds their position. Everybody smashes the thing at the right time. That people aren't firing off at their own angle, just their own agenda, but there'll be unity in everything we do. Bless this church and establish it as a church known for its unity and its commitment and its trust of leadership. I pray, Lord, that you will build a deep trust between the leaders and the people, which will be very effective for bringing the gospel to this part of our country, to Solihull. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.